This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. We've taken the show on the We're road. We're on the buses. We are, literally. It's a uh, busman's the, holiday. It is. We're on the top deck of the 73 bus. Yeah, isn't it fantastic? Well, I'm often on this bus, so it's less of a novelty to me. Really? Mine is the 214. I take the 214 from outside King's Cross when I'm coming back from my constituency. I'm a great fan of the 214. For a long time, the 23 was my bus. And it would go from where I lived back in West London right across the other side of East London. And sometimes I'd be over there and I'd see it and I'd think, it's got this whole other life. You know, like cats. Yeah. You sometimes find out they've been secretly living with another family. Without telling you. Yeah, that's how I would feel when I was... The 74 my- used to be my bus when I was growing up. Do you have a favoured position? So firstly, are you more of a single-decker or a double-decker bus guy? Well, the 214 is a single-decker, but I'm, I think I'm more of a double-decker guy, really. And do you have a seat that you gravitate towards? Mm, not really. The best seat on a single-decker is the back seat in the middle, because you feel like you're the king of the bus in a throne, looking down at all your loyal subjects. Less of the man spreading, please. <laughs> and then on a double-decker, I think it has to be a front seat in the window, doesn't it? So you feel like you're driving the bus. Well, there's always that thing, are you going to get down to the... Oh, you're going to get off the bus in time. You do strike me as somebody who's no stranger to falling over on the, on no, the bus. true. Actually, not... I remember now you mention it. I remember no. as a kid falling over when I was trying to get off a route master as it was moving. Really? Because there was a thing we used to do as a kid. You, I think it was the bus that we took. For some reason, I can't quite remember the detail. But anyway, it didn't actually stop. It just slowed down where we wanted to, to get jump off. jump on it. Yeah, jump off it. Yeah, that was bad. And I just fell over. 
I think it's for people like you. They've recently introduced that announcement telling to hold <laughs> yeah, exactly. tight that the bus is about to exactly, move. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Anyway, why are we on the buses? We're on the buses because we're talking buses today. We're exactly. not just reenacting the sitcom on the buses, which Indeed. it turns out you've never seen. No, I haven't, no. So if I said, I, I hate you, Butler, it'd mean nothing to you. It wouldn't mean anything, no. no. I'd be insulted, but it wouldn't mean anything. Um... We're talking about bus services. You know, lots of the time we spend talking about trains and railways, and of course that's important. But actually, a lot more people use buses, a lot more poorer people use buses, and I think as a result of that class issue, buses just don't get the attention they deserve. And I'm afraid outside London, London has a regulated bus service, we'll be hearing the detail of this in a bit but london has a regulated bus service outside london it is basically kind of the wild west and i'm afraid the wild west has not served us well over the last 30 years in terms of bus services we recently heard that bus coverage was at a 28 year low we've lost millions of miles of bus routes so i think it's time we talked about it and that's what we're going to be doing and there are reasons to be cheerful in there because there are other ways of doing it and there are examples not just from around the world but in this country as well indeed and we've got a friend of the podcast nicole badge who's coming on for the second time because she's so brilliant at explaining these complex transport issues and we've also got kat hobbs who's the director of we own it which is about the case for public mutual uh, and and new forms of ownership of our public services. We're going to keep an eye out for them along the route. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Wave to them from the top deck. Indeed. And as well as that, once we're off the bus, we have an interview with American author Dan Pink. You may remember us raving about his YouTube video a while back. Uh, he has a book. You out. may just remember us raving on the other hand. <laughs> yeah, we are uh, raving. <laughs> <a> raving. <Yes. laughs> uh. He has a book called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. I've always thought you had perfect timing, timing. Jeff. <laughs> And then um, uh, we'll also have a brilliant comedian. Um, I mean, I don't know how she'll rival that. Um, Kiri Pritchard-McLean coming to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. And what's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well, yesterday was a very special day for me because finally I managed to secure an invitation to the uh, to have a cup of tea at the House of Commons, at the House of Parliament. Well, hang, hang on a minute. Yes. The invitation was to your mother-in-law and father-in-law. Yeah, no, I did have you to gate back on thought, the invitation. Well, I, I didn't want a George Ezra situation over again, so I thought Indeed. Ed has invited my in-laws. This is my one shot. So you were surprised to see me turn up as well, right? No, I was delighted to see you turn up. But I, I think we had a lovely time. I got to you got a nice tour. Got a lovely tour. Um, Alex and Lindsay know a lot about the history of the place. You've worked there for how many years? Um. Well, I've been an MP for 12 years, but I mean, I've worked there. I, don't, I wasn't actually... Yeah. I mean, you don't see, my point is you don't seem to have retained that many facts about the place over the decades that you've been working there. No, I'm completely hopeless. I do know where... Uh, the, 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 the staple of my very short tour is the Emily Wilding Davison plaque that Tony Benn put up in this cupboard where she hid uh, as a suffragette. Now, that was very exciting. We got to go down into the... The crypt of the and it was a nice there. tea, wasn't it, in the Pugin room? It was lovely, very ornate room, named after the uh, the architect. Pugin. The Pugin. And I got to see a, a very ornate haircut belonging to Michael Fabricant, 
he was in the tea room as well and I've admired that haircut on the television over the years and to see it in the flesh was really quite something. Were you tempted to go up and feel his gold? Oh yeah, I just wanted to do a Jimmy Fallon and get my hand in there and have a little little rummage. Towsel. uh, Yeah, yeah, a little towsel, check for nits. But um, it didn't seem like a thing to do on a first date. (laughs) No, I think it was good from my point of view that you didn't do that. And Lynn and Joe, your parents-in-law, enjoyed it? had a wonderful time. You made a very grave mistake. You gave Lynn your email address. So she's going to I think be emailing you directly I think on a daily basis. I think she'll use it wisely. Don't you underestimate the woman. Yeah. Do you want to know mine? Yes, please. So we've been nominated for an award. Aha. The, this isn't going to rake up all the painful memories of the last time you were nominated Depends for an award. if we win or not. Uh, Broadcasting Press Guild Awards. And we're, on, we, we, we're in great... Uh, Company, uh, we're in the company of John Ronson's The Butterfly Effect. That is a great podcast. Uh, Romesh Ranganathan's Hip Hop Saved My Life, that's and the Romaniacs podcast. No, no, don't don't do yourself down like that. Anyway, it's nice to be nominated, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. We can make a joint trip to Mossbros to rent Indeed. our tuxedos. Indeed. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined by Nicole Badstuber, a second time on the podcast, a policy analyst uh, at UCL on, on transport policy, and Kat Hobbs, director of We Own It. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, I think we're spoiled in London with buses. I mean, is, is, is that the case? Is, 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 is the system different? Is it regulated differently outside of London? Yeah, so the system outside of London is quite different than what we have here in London. So to let's start off with outside of London. So basically yes, what okay. we have there is various companies competing for passengers. So they will run commercial services without subsidy um, and they will mainly pick routes that are profitable and run services along them. Then you have local government, which will subsidise some other routes um, so that there is a level of network coverage and it also provides um, services to people who maybe can't afford it, such as older people or children. And the outside London is in a pretty bad way, isn't it? I think routes have... We've lost thousands of routes yeah. in the last. So in the few last years. ten years, we've lost 134 million miles of bus coverage. Wow! Um, and it's wild to me that it's not just the case that the local authorities say we need a bus to go from here to here. Who wants to? Who wants to run it? That's not how it works. No. So um, outside of London, we have a deregulated and privatised market. So what does that mean? So basically, it means that the government isn't deciding. Oh, we should have a bus along here running at this frequency along certain times. Um, Instead, you have these private companies who decide where they want to run buses and when. And they give 56 days notice for when they want to run a bus service or stop running a bus service. And and that's basically it. Um, And so it's a system that was introduced in the 1980s. Um, So up until then, you had 50 years in which you had basically the same sort of setup. You had mainly public um, companies running the bus services. And they would run them in network basis. um, And that was all based on the Act of 1930, the Road Traffic Act. However, in those 50 years, the bus landscape changed quite a lot. So between the uh, 1960s and 80s, passenger numbers halved. um, And that was mainly due to the increase of private car usage. So the idea then in the 80s was, well, this doesn't really seem to be working. We don't have enough passengers. So fares aren't really covering the costs and subsidies have to go up. So the Conservative government at the time decided that they should let the private sector decide where they'd want to run buses. They thought this would reduce subsidy levels and also mean that it was more innovative and more agile to adapt to where passengers wanted to go and what they wanted to do. 
But it hasn't worked like that. Not really, no. But tell us about London, Nicole, because London is, we're obviously in London on 73 yes. bus. Um, it's a different system, isn't it? Yes. So in London, they didn't deregulate the market. So um, the London government retained some control over what buses would be going where and when. Um, and as a result, we now have a system here where Transport for London will say, I would like a bus to run, say this bus, at a five-minute frequency all days of the week. Um, how much would it cost um, us as TfL to pay you as a bus company to run that service? So you still have the private sector involved, but rather than there being competition in the market, so different buses turning up at the same bus stop, you have competition for the market. Does it work better, and if so, why? Yeah, so I think there is consensus that this system seems to work better, and that is also consensus at the government level. So there has been a new act that maybe we'll talk about later, um, the Bus Services Act, which is trying to um, allow other authorities to also run a similar model. So why does it work better? Basically because you have the efficiencies of running a network. So you have someone who can decide that um, this is where we'd like to run buses, this is provide a better coverage, um, and we have a more even coverage. So rather than various bus companies competing on the same stretch of road, um, you can get those companies to run various routes. Um, also, it works better for the passenger because they have an integrated setup for their perspective. You just use your Oyster card or your contactless card, and you can use a whole range of services. Um, it's cheaper um, mainly because the risk is held by TfL in this case because the risk is mainly down to um, how many ticket sales there's going to be since Transport for London still collects all the ticket sales they hold that risk so if there's suddenly no people on that route then that's their loss rather than the company's loss because the company's taking less risk um, they can therefore offer a lower price to run that service and just to be clear about this it's not because we're spending more money per passenger on buses in London. So it's not. It's not. It's not. It's. It's a system difference, not a sort of not mainly a financial difference. Yeah. So the main efficiencies are through having a network. And did you say that outside of London, the the authorities aren't um, choosing the bus fares? So I'm from Manchester. I remember the bus wars in Manchester in the 1990 when you get all these different buses going up and down Wimslow Road and the prices were all over the place depending on which bus you got on. Yeah. Um, so is that the, the, the case with buses elsewhere in the country? The fares are whatever the operators want to choose yes, up until the point? Yes, yeah. So the idea there with your bus wars was um, the, when this system was introduced, the idea was that the competition would produce lower prices for the passenger, better services. Um, but obviously, it mainly means that the private companies focus on the profitable routes and then North don't go really Ray. go out, and there's a lot of o- overlap. Now, Kat Hobbs from uh, We Own It, director of We Own It. Tell us a little bit about We Own It and specifically your campaign on bus services. So our argument is that privatisation has failed and over the last 30 years we've seen this ideology that actually hasn't worked for the users of public services. So we operate, we we talk about um, not just buses but also trains, water, energy, the NHS um, and what we see is the same pattern. So we see that when you have services that are privatised you see costs go up, you see quality go down and you lose accountability as the people who are 
uh, paying for the service, using the service, um, we don't really have any say over it. So what we're arguing is that we need a mixed economy. We need a strong public sector, public services, um, and you know, let private companies get on with what they're good at doing. What they're not good at doing is running services that are vital for our communities, um, that are often natural monopolies, and that need some element of democracy in them. And tell us why bus services are so important, because it's so striking that the, the, pu- the public debate is, we hear lots and lots about trains. Yeah. We did th- uh, an episode with uh, Nicole on, on the railways, the state of the railways, and that's important. But actually, for lots and lots of people, bus services are much more important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, many more people take the bus. Uh, I think it's a class thing, really. Lots of commuters going to London by train, and so they have a, a larger voice in the system. Not enough of a voice when you look at the fare increases and the packed carriages. Um, but buses are often, you know, the sort of forgotten part of public transport. And yet, you know, billions of journeys are made by bus every year. And, you know, we, we really need these services to keep communities connected. So I think it's a, it's a political... Uh, decision not to prioritise bus users because they're they're often you know underrepresented. And uh, tell us a little bit about what you want to happen. I mean, in other words, what what are you advocating that should change around our bus services? So right now, as Nicole said, we've got this kind of fake competition. Um, actually, we have you know the big five bus companies dominating the market and there's this insistence that you know uh, so the competition commission in 2011 said that bus passengers weren't behaving like proper consumers because they just got on the first bus that comes along Um, obviously that's what people do in the real world Um, so I think we need to stop pretending that competition is useful in this and as as Nicole said we need to run buses as a network Um, that makes it much more integrated and efficient and it means that we can plan and we can help people leave their cars behind Um, and also if we have uh, buses run for people rather than profit we can reinvest Uh, the dividends, the profits, rather than sending them off to shareholders. So what we want to see is buses run by uh, municipal publicly owned companies. Is that like the Transport for London model? Not quite. So Transport for London is better than what happens in the rest of the country because you've got a franchising model, you've got lower profit margins and you've got control over the network. So that helps bus passengers a lot. And because you've got the concentration of population there's a good there's a good system however if you got uh, private companies out of that system altogether transport for london would be more than capable of running a bus company itself and doing that work directly and then the profits could be reinvested back into better buses so um, there are already 10 municipal bus companies in the uk um, and they do a really good job they often win awards so for example in reading reading buses uh, has an extra three million a year to invest back into its services, and it provides more evening services, more Sunday services, because it's got that extra cash. So we could do that in London as well as the rest of the country. And can any municipality form? Because one thing we learned with the trains is you, you, you know, if you wanted to form a publicly owned company to yeah. bid for a train franchise, you can't. No, you can't so just do that and give you fifty-six days notice. Then exactly. So we ran a campaign because uh, when the uh, government introduced the Bus Services Act. They included two thousand and seventeen. Yeah, so they, so they basically included a, a ban on new municipal bus companies 
Um, so they they won't let local authorities set up new bus companies. What was um, that? What was their reason for doing that? I, I mean, I think politically, it'd be interesting. I think it's a very politically just ideological decision yeah. because the Transport Select Committee, so the House of Commons Transport Select Committee, was Seven. not in favour of this. Many campaigns Two. were not in favour of this. It seems to be a very ideologically driven decision, and probably there were quite a lot of lobbying powers there from the. Tr- various bus Absolutely, companies yeah. so yeah just to add what Kat said earlier there's big five so Arriva Stagecoach First Group Go Ahead and National Express run 70% of the network wow. um, and so and the um, commission report that Kat was referring to said that only 1% of these services actually had in the market competition so that there was actually you, as a passenger had a choice between different companies providing the same route um, so this idea that competition is actually there in the market isn't really the case and when it is there as you saw with the bus wars in manchester it's not a great thing for passengers anyway um so there is one good thing isn't there about this or at least one good thing about this 2017 act which it it will allow not to go as far as cat has recommended but it will allow um other regions um to do what london has done yeah. With elected mayors, is that right? Yes, so all our um, mayoral combined authorities to basically adopt a similar model to what we have in t- at TFL, um, which will b- allow them to ask private companies to run certain routes, but they will retain the sort of management of that network. Um, but it's only sadly affecting a few cities. But that will mean that they can specify fares, services... Yeah. and all of that frequency yeah, but they have to have they have to have a mayor don't they yes. and they so there's only a handful of areas right. that can do it right. manchester is the most likely to do it politically but they're going to have a fight on their hands with the bus operators because bus companies don't want this to happen they don't want us to go down this route and it is worth saying isn't it that there's been a long and rather sorry history of the previous labor government trying to help local yep. authorities to introduce a london style system yes. quality contracts yep. and all of that and it Nobody did it. No, no one adopted the model <laughs> Because they were worried about legal threats from the bus companies in part, Yeah, so maybe? there was quite a lot of hoops that they had to jump right. through and they had to sort of prove that this was the only practical way of improving the transport network and that it had real sound um, benefits like helping the envi- helping meet environmental metrics and pollution metrics. And so they made it very difficult for um, municipalities to actually use these quality contracts um, so no one adopted them. And could it, would it be different this time, at least in these different metropolitan sort of mayoral authorities? Um, so those that can use a franchising model, I hope, will adopt it, and that should really um, change Oxford the way transport is provided in those cities. But it um, needs to go beyond those areas, is yes. what Kat's saying. And, the, you know, we've, as we've said, there's huge vested interest. So if yeah. the if the bus company shareholders are getting, as they are, they've had 1.8 billion over the last... 10 years you know then they're not going to give up their buses lightly and if it works for Manchester and then other areas can see that it works that's going to reduce their profit margins and and ultimately you know potentially pave the way for a new system so they're not going to want this to happen Um, yeah so the profit margins for the bus companies so that the bus we're sitting on right now isn't provided by transport for London is provided by one of the companies and they take in a lower profit here in London than they do outside of London so obviously that will be one of a, a strong argument for them so push back against this idea and in terms of raising money to spend on buses um i believe there's a system in nottingham is that right where yes. they charge so it's called the work yeah workplace levy um and so what they do is uh charge uh 
offices, companies who have more than 11 um, parking spaces um, an extra charge and they've managed to collect £440 million through this workplace levy right. um, and managed to invest that into various transport projects so one of them is doubling their tram network, they've also managed to invest in upgrading one of their railway stations so it's been a great way for them to earmark money directly for public transport efforts. Because as well as a sort of system problem, there is a money problem here, isn't there? I mean, I was going to ask you about rural areas because we haven't talked about rural areas, and that is one of the biggest areas where the lack of bus services is just a massive problem. But you still get situations where there's a bus that goes once a week on a Tuesday and then comes back a week the following Thursday and stuff. There's MP in Doncaster, I represent a part of Doncaster to the north, which is outside the centre and it's just a you know it's just a massive problem that the the quality of the bus services the infrequency of the bus services the expense of the bus services is a massive problem but that does is that that requires money in some way does it it does although um our research on the shareholder dividends showed that if you took those out of the system and reinvested them you could more than cover all the thousands of bus cuts made since 2010 so Yes, you do need money, but not huge amounts. And it's so socially important and economically important that people can get around. So 2010 was a, 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 a cliff edge, really. Yeah, exactly. So so bus funding was increasing up until that point, yeah. and then it, it, it dropped off um, with, the, with the austerity programme. And I guess what that shows is this focus on trying to get the user to pay more um, and also not valuing these sort of wider social impacts um, that I was talking about with the railways but you have them of course with the buses as well so one big thing which is one big argument for having a concessionary ticket for older people is tackling loneliness and mental health um, and so a lot of people especially in rural areas which are so reliant on this very infrequent bus service really um, need those bus services even if they cost a lot and I guess there are arguments how if you redistributed some budgets from say healthcare or mental health care um, or other wider social projects that that should go towards transport um, because transport is a means of achieving those wider goals but uh, government departments typically that joined up though no, no. that's a problem no. are there other examples around the world that we should be learning from are there particular places that have really good services that we could be looking to so in Germany and Austria, I believe, they have 88% of their services are municipal. They run really well. They're efficient. They're affordable. Um, so I think we should be, should be looking at those models. It's, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of interesting how we think about this and we think that the, you know, the private sector has to be involved. But we can easily you know, step across the channel and see what's going on elsewhere in Europe. And, and it's, you know, it's happening and it's working. So it's, it's not a particularly radical proposition to say that we should have municipal bus companies that are properly funded and providing a good and network of, of bus services. And what about public use of buses? Um, is that something the public needs sort of educating on a little bit to do with, I guess, like environmental factors and congestion? Well, I, th- I mean, it has to be a good choice for people. Right, and at the right. moment, you know, the real cost of taking the bus keeps climbing. You know, there often aren't buses, as you said, you know, sometimes there's a bus once a day if you're in a rural area. So we have to make it easy for people to make the right choice yeah. and to make a low carbon choice. And at the moment, it's not, it's not joined up enough and it's not high quality enough. So to really compete with the car, to get people out of using their cars, you need to provide them with an offering that competes with that. So the only way 
in my opinion, that you can do that is by having an integrated transport network, which also go, has different modes that cater for different um, journey um, destinations and purposes, um, and also cater to them for all times of the day, not just during the commuter hours. So it's really important to do that because without it, we're never going to achieve a mode shift, which we really need to do to meet environmental targets. So. Since the 1990s, um, the carbon emissions from cars or even particle matter from cars has been um, static. So it's still about 60% of all transport emissions come from just personal cars. Um, so we're not really achieving the shift that we need to. And especially with employment centralization in cities, the only way we can get more people into these places of employment is through high-capacity transport networks. Nicole. Kat has made the point about municipal bus services. You've made the point about regulated services but still run by the private sector. Do you have a particular view on the role of municipal services versus those run in the private sector? Um, I guess it's thinking about the long term and the shorter term. I think within the current regulatory framework here in the UK, it's more realistic to have a sort of concession model as we have here in London. Um, in the longer term, there is this... Um, movement and consensus towards wanting more municipalities at least in continental Europe so for instance in France which has had um, two main private companies run most of the bus networks outside of um, Paris um, they, you now see lots of municipalities in France trying to set up these municipal bus companies um, they had a new legislation in 2010 to allow them to do that um, so that can be a longer term vision but maybe in the short term let's see how we can make better you know steps towards that um and i hesitate to ask this hoping the driver won't hear me <laughs> are we heading towards driverless buses i mean people are talking about driverless cars driverless trucks yeah definitely so i are think we 10 15 20 years away well so they're going to be testing driverless cars very soon i think 2019 on our roads um uh, there's, there's some really scary stuff out there, which is, you know, basically being pushed by tech companies and the industry is getting ready for it. And it's going to be a huge shift. You know, so we're moving away from the car companies to big US tech companies who are looking at this driverless technology. And it's not it's not ready to go because there's a whole bunch of legislation that needs to happen and decisions that need to be made about how do these vehicles navigate the roads um, you know, how do they interact with pedestrians and cyclists and how does it fit in with active transport? But at the moment, it doesn't feel like, well, I, I think we need the left to have a vision for driverless vehicles and how that, you know, how that will fit in with public transport and how it fits. And in what do you think that is? Well, I think we need to own driverless cars. So if we have fleets of, of driverless cars that are publicly owned, that can solve a lot of the problems around rural transport. So you can have a door-to-door -door service that links in with a publicly owned transport network. Um, so it's like from Boris Bikes to Jeff, <laughs> Jeff's cars, basically. Exactly, exactly. That sounds like a minicab. <laughs> 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 That's true, actually. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's really that's important. That's the general concept, anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's important we'll for... S yeah. <laughs> it's important for cities or nations to take the steps now to set up the right regulatory frameworks for them to work in. So otherwise... For instance, driverless cars or um, other demand-responsive transport modes are, can be really good at plugging this gap between where you know the main transport networks end and where you actually live. 
but if we don't regulate for them to for instance only work in that space then you'll have driverless pods coming into central london because yeah they'll be much more convenient for people to use and without a driver the driver is the main cost so if you get in a taxi that's the main cost of the journey is paying for so you the need taxi a sort of cab mass driver. transit driverless option is sort of what you're saying exactly and we need to think about jobs in that context too you know what kind of jobs will be useful yeah. but I mean, it has the potential to transform our cities. So if we made a decision, actually, we don't want cities to have cars anymore. You know, we'll have driverless cars and they'll connect in with the public transport. That could free up a huge amount of road space. And as Nicole said, it's going to be cheaper. So it's, there's a huge amount of, you know, it's going to be driven to happen. But we need it to be that driverless cars help us to get clean, green cities. If it was run properly, it'd free up a load of space space as well because there wouldn't be parked cars everywhere. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so they could be, for example, cycle lanes... And then you could have, you know, walking and cycling and driverless cars and public transport in cities. And you could have a door-to-door offer if you're in a rural area that's much more comprehensive. But it has to be thought through and planned. It can't just, it's not just going to happen. Because and these don't seem like the sort of things that political parties do the best job of thinking exactly. about until after they've and happened. I think as I'm right Uber, and so on. Uber exactly. is trying to move into this space, isn't it? It's trying to sort of colonise this space. Yeah, yes, and and it's you know it's incredibly popular because because it is so. But I mean, colonise the space of sort of quasi buses. Am I wrong about? Yeah, that? so they're trying to move into starting to provide buses or at least compete with public transport systems, and they've started to do that in some of the U.S. American cities. Um, should we be fearful three, of that? Should we be? Two, well, yeah, I mean, I think they pose a real challenge for a certain demographic to the uh, transport options. So they are a challenge to the public transport system. And losing a lot of those sort of maybe higher income users of the system, you also lose people advocating for that system who have a voice um, and have one that will, will, they will make sure is heard. Um, and so then what you end up could end up with is maybe a system that people feel is only for though like a last resort yeah. like if you can't own a car then you use a bus yeah. and so maybe that's a problem that we have outside of london as well is that using the bus is seen as sort of an option that you have to use if you have no no Central others so if we station. start losing a whole chunk of users to uber or its competitors um then that does pose a real challenge and obviously transport for london has already um said that it's losing passengers so maybe the tide is already turning there we were just talking before we got on the bus, actually, about Uber has affected the quality of service for bus users because of the congestion. Yes. Um, so in the last few years, we've had 25,000 new minicab registrations in just three years. Um, that's, an, um, that's up from fi- about 50,000 to 85,000. So that's quite a lot of extra cars on the road. And unlike sort of private usage of your private car, um, they have an incentive to stay on the road. Um, so they're going to use up road space and start circulating until they get a passenger to you who will come in and use their service. Um, so that is um, leading to reliability on buses dropping, um, which of course then in turn leads to people not using the bus and you have this vicious cycle of more and more people opting for other modes of travel. And there's nothing really you can do about that in terms of congestion lanes and so on because the roads aren't wide enough for it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess um, TfL or whatever authority would be in charge in the city could try and um, get the powers to regulate minicab registrations more um, and could use other demand measures sort of making more of the road space 
for um, cabs or, or for buses mainly or trying to enforce that more. Yeah, so there's this concept of mobility as a service where, you know, the your driverless car could be linked up to the public transport and it could be coordinated with, with cycling and walking. And, you know, you can have a door-to-door option and it's on your smartphone and that's all laid out for you. But that, that whole concept kind of acknowledges that public transport of all kinds is essentially a natural monopoly and essentially a network and something where people don't actually want when to think about... natural monopoly, just explain what you mean by that. So it's something that it's more efficient if there isn't lots of competition. It's something that, you know, it, you, you actually just have duplication and waste if you have a huge amount of competition in the system. So we need authorities like Transport for London to be thinking, what is the role of Uber in our transport network you know could we could we make them publicly owned could we make them coordinated with our public transport so that we can reduce congestion and give people better options at the same time i think we should um ask one other question which is assuming that in the jeffocracy which is when jeff rules the world or at least rules britain um, assuming he, the world. Why okay, not? Okay. Assuming he doesn't keep Chris Grayling on as transport secretary, <laughs> uh, and he makes the two of you joint transport yeah. secretaries in the Jeffocracy, tell us, um, Nicole and Kat, what would you what would you do uh, on around buses? Um, I think buses should be a key part of an integrated transport system um, that should mainly be organised at a sort of a metropolitan regional level, um, basically trying to capture travel to work um, journeys. Um, buses are great because Houston you can station. adapt them to where demand is or where new demand is um, much more easily than trains um, and we should be using that more. Um, I think I would designate a lot more road space specifically for buses and try and enforce that more to encourage more people to use buses and improve their reliability. Um, they're really space efficient to get people to work and they can. you can in other cities, for instance New York, you have more express buses so they travel much faster in from the suburbs into central um, New York or they could be in central London so they could form an even greater role in our transport system and they're really adaptive so yeah so Margaret Thatcher said anyone over the age of what was it 30 she didn't actually say it but let's pretend that let's she pretend did because it's did such she a great it? quote no, okay. it's fake news is it fake news but it's yeah. the years. I know yeah it's okay. such a great I, quote I, I but let's use it apparently well, I don't think we should oh. use it as fake news well well we've said that it's fake news so now we can use it we should say maybe <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Thatcher well, famously didn't okay. say Margaret. but it sounds like the sort of thing she would have said okay Margaret Thatcher said something about being over 30 and being on a bus and I think um, it, in the, in the jeffocracy any man who uh, finds himself on a bus over the age of 30 can count himself as a failure exactly <laughs> so in she didn't say it <laughs> <laughs> she was supposed to have said it but didn't so in the jeffocracy I yeah. would suggest any person who finds himself over 30 on a bus should count themselves as a success yeah. Yeah. and should feel that it's an amazing option and they're really happy that they possibly don't even need to have a car because cars are now driverless publicly owned working wonderfully as and when they need them Um, but they're happy to be using the bus and integrated with the train whenever they want Um, so yeah that's that's my vision but and and to get there we do need local authority municipally owned bus companies and we need to restore a kind of pride in that you know and what that can deliver because we have this idea that local authorities can't do anything but we we know quite clearly from around the world that they can and and from right here in the uk so fantastic 
I think they've got the job. <laughs> what do you think? I'm going to give you each oh, 56, 56 days to submit your application. <laughs> thank you very much to thank Nicole you. and to Kat. So what do you think? Well, I think the Bus Act is a reason to be cheerful. It's looking at the way it's done in London and saying this I is something that's that the can first be rolled time out. in history that you have said a parliamentary act is a reason to be cheerful. I think that should be noted, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it? It should, they should put it down in Hansard. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, I remember watching a documentary a while ago called Urbanised, which is a really good documentary about, I guess, like city planning and so on. And a mayor of some city in South America saying that... Um, the bus, because say a bus has got 50 people on it, then the users of that bus should get 50 times more the amount of consideration as a road user than the one oh, person that's a good way of using a car. It. And I thought that was That's a really good way of thinking about it. I mean, look, I found it a really inspiring discussion with Nicole and Kat. I mean, the thing I feel most of all is this issue has got to be taken seriously. I'll never forget being my first local elections as an MP. And I remember it was, I think it was 2006, and I remember being at the polling session, nobody turned up. No, nobody was voting. And I remember saying to somebody, why is nobody voting? And they were like, yeah, the buses. And I said, well, what do you mean the buses? I think they were saying something actually quite profound to me, which is people feel like voting doesn't make a difference. The buses have always been, or been rubbish for a long time. They're not controlled by the local authority. Why should people vote when they can't have a say in these things? And I think the Bus Act feels like it opens the door a bit, though there's some serious problems with it. But I think it's taking this seriously. And look, I think, think about it like this. If we took as seriously the crisis in relation to our buses as we do the crisis in relation to our railways, we'd be talking about it a lot more, and I think we'd be doing a lot more. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. And joining us now, author of When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, Dan Pink. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to see you in person. I'm glad to be here in person. And we were just talking about a weird serendipity. We, we received an email from a listener saying, you've got to watch this uh, this YouTube video of a TED Talk. And we did, and it, it was you. And then the same day we received an email. So the, the email wasn't from me. The, the TED Talk was from <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> um, unless you're using a pseudonym. No, yeah. no. That's Donald Trump, I think, who does that. <laughs> yes. uh, can, can you, uh, for people who haven't seen the uh, the TED talk that you did. Can you tell us a bit about the idea of it? It's about work and motivation. Sure, sure. It was actually done in the United Kingdom. That TED talk. Um, so this is a, about some research on the science of motivation, basically showing that there's a certain kind of motivator we use in organizations. I call it an if-then motivator. If you do this, then you get that. Could be money. Could be a promotion. Could be whatever. Uh, it tends to be very effective for simple short-term tasks, but really not effective at all for complex long-term tasks. They, the carrot and stick motivators just don't work very well. And there's 50 years of behavioral science telling us this very, very clearly. So the whole thing about sort of performance-related pay and all that, and if you give people extra money, it calls a lot into question, it, it, it? It's exactly right, Ed. It calls it into question. It doesn't mean that it's bad in every case, but what is, seems pretty clear is that if you want people to do things with long time horizons, or you want them to think in an expansive way, think in a conceptual way, uh, creative, those kinds of sh those kinds of incentives just don't work very well. And what what happens is is that we love rewards. Meaning, not I mean America, Americans love rewards, but uh, middle aged white guys love rewards. <laughs> Everybody loves rewards. Human beings love rewards. 
and um, and they get our attention, but they get our attention in this very narrow focused way. So having that locked in narrow focus is very good for things that are relatively simple and short term, but they're less good for things that are more um, uh, creative, conceptual. And the other thing you say in this TED talk is that you're you're quite positive about companies that introduce much greater flexibility oh, to the yeah. workday you know, much less scheduling of people because of what it does for creativity. Absolutely. When you look at, say, so so that, so that, the research tells us very clearly what not to do. There's other research that then says, okay, if we're going to abandon a lot of these 20th century, 19th and 20th century motivators and move into 21st century motivators, what are they? And, and those 21st century motivators tend to be things like, as you say, autonomy, which is a sense of sovereignty over what you do, how you do it, when you do it. Sense of mastery, which is getting better at something that matters, making progress and meaningful work. And the third one is a sense of purpose, which is, you know, are you know why you're doing something, not just that you have to do it. And does this partly explain why a lot of businesses are trying to sort of claim sometimes genuinely, sometimes not so genuinely, that they have a social purpose because they sure. are recognizing that people don't, this is not the 1980s Gordon Gecko kind of era. People don't want to kind of just go and make money. People want more than that. I, I think there's a, I think there's a somewhat of a generational shift there. I also think, you know, in the broader context is there's a lot of questions about the moral virtues of capitalism happening right now. And this is just to me as part of that conversation. That's the big picture. On the smaller picture, what you see is you see people who are individuals who are making decisions about where to work based on some of these social factors, not based on, you have to, you ha, here's the thing, you got to get the money right. You got to pay people. You got to pay people enough. But um, what the research shows is that the best thing, the best form of compensation is paying people enough to take the issue of money off the table, paying people enough so they're focused on the work, the purpose, not on the money itself. And does it partly explain the success of things like Wikipedia that, you know, what people get, the you know, Wikipedia, an extraordinary thing. None of the people who do, who contribute to it, do it for money. They do it for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I was when I was studying economics in university a hundred years ago, well, not hundred years ago, thirty years ago, um, that would have theme, seemed theoretically impossible. Like it would have been like a problem in physics that where you say, okay, the law of gravity is not going to exist, and so instead of walking from place to place, we're just going to float there. Oh, come on. That's that violates everything we know about physics. And the idea that you could have this army of volunteers, none of whom are getting paid, produce this encyclopedia that it's not perfect, but that is actually quite good. And no one's getting paid. is pretty interesting. And having sort of done that and got great attention for that, you've you've and you've obviously got other books, but you've now produced this new book called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which I must say I read in one sitting oh, yesterday thanks. because I was really sort of gripped by it, particularly the bit on the midlife crisis, uh, which will <laughs> which will uh, which will come to. Yes. But but look, start off by talking about this thing about times of the day because yeah. this is really sort of illuminating. I mean, don't 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 have an operation in the afternoon. No, so it's a, a short. Don't, don't see a doctor in the afternoon. Don't go to an important medical appointment or have go to a hospital if you can avoid it in the afternoon, period. I, I think it's like, I mean, I would not let anybody in my family go to a hospital or go to an important doctor's appointment in the afternoon, period. And, and the evidence is, is well, quite so, scary. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so here we go. So let, let me let me offer you the terrifying factoids. Uh, anesthesia errors, four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. 
Uh, hand washing in hospitals deteriorates significantly in the afternoon. And we know that 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 hand washing in hospitals, uh, lack of hand washing leads to hospital acquired infections, which is a horrific problem, both physically and, and economically. Um, you look at uh, I know your listeners, I'm sure, love to talk about colonoscopies, colonoscopies. Um, half as many polyps are found in afternoon exams versus morning exams. Uh, unnecessary doctors much more likely to prescribe to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in the afternoon than in the morning. I mean, just over now and over and over Now, we should say this again. is about American medical care, so just partly because I want to sort of protect the NHS a little yeah. bit here. And and you do say in the book that there are remedies Absolutely for right, and that's so important. Yeah. Introducing breaks for people. But there's wider application. Is that this is not just, in a way, doctors is the kind of tip of the iceberg. It applies to all of us. Absolutely. There's nothing, that's a very good point. Those are two very good points. Number one is that there is a remedy, and the remedy tends to be breaks. So if you think about those, that the deterioration of hand washing in hospitals, one of the things that gets, gets the hand washing back up is giving especially uh, a lot of the research is on nurses giving nurses more breaks and especially social breaks certain kinds of breaks um uh, a lot of the medical care in the united states has has begun to accommodate this by having doctors do timeouts using checklists and things like that to to arrest some of that but the, but but physicians and nurses and, and healthcare professionals right they're part they're human beings and and we all have we are all affected by this hidden pattern of the day, which generally moves a peak, a trough, and a recovery. Now, if you're a night owl, it goes the opposite direction, recovery, trough, peak. But if you're, but most of us follow this, this diurnal pattern, and there are cer- certain times of day when we're better at certain kinds of things. Just at a more basic level, explain what the thing is about the times of the day. This is for the generality, not for sure. people who are night owl. Yeah, or yeah, the yeah. Exception yeah, in general. So, so we have a peak period. That's when we're better off doing uh, analytic work, the work that requires um, really focused attention and, and vigilance, really. So um, if you have to write a, write a report or analyze data or something like that, where you really were vigilant during our peak, we can bat away distractions. The trough, which we've talked about before, not good for very much. That's when you should be answering your routine email. And the peak tends to be in the morning for most for people. For most people, right. Uh, and then there's a dip. And there's a dip, a, a trough, that I think most people in their lived experience understand that. Uh, but, you know, so there's a, a trough. That's when a lot of bad stuff happens. There's, a, there's, there's actually a research out of the UK showing a disproportionate number of traffic accidents between 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. Right. Um, and then the recovery period is actually really interesting because what we have in the later in the day, for, again, for most people, is... You have elevated mood. So your mood is better than during the trough. And you have this interesting combination that you're less vigilant than during the peak. And so the, the so being less vigilant in a slightly better mood makes it a good time for, for like brainstorming, creative kinds of things. Um, and so if we just move the work around just a little bit, you can get you can get gains. There's research showing the time of day, just time of day explains about 20% of the variance in how people perform on cognitive tasks. So, you know, it doesn't mean that it's everything, but it's a big thing. Because I feel for the first two hours of any given day after I wake up, people should not talk to me. I shouldn't even be asked to perform the most basic of of tasks. Do you consider yourself a night owl? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so what time do you typically go to sleep? One or two. Okay, and what time do you wake up? Like I've I've got a, uh, a, a nearly two year old. Son, oh, okay. So, that so, affects so you don't ever you never left sleep. Left my own yeah. devices. Yeah. I think I would just sleep till like ten or eleven. Or yeah. Something. Okay. So you're that's that's pretty that's pretty night alley. Yeah. So that's so you're you know about twenty percent of the population is. So when am I at my best then? Well, it depends on what We're, we've been asking that for <laughs> the, the six months uh, of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's uh, uh it, it depends. You're better off doing your most important work later in the day. You're better off doing basically going from recovery trough peak. So this is I don't know whether it's true, but if you get going, say you know in the late afternoon and early evening, that one that's when you might be better to do your focus most important work. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm, the problem is, and this is this is why we're talking in your in the attic of your house is that if you were in a regular corporate setting, it's completely biased against you. It's completely configured to disadvantage people like you. Yes, I'm a victim. Yeah. Well, it's extraordinary <laughs> this thing about teenagers in America being forced to go to school at 7:55 in the morning. What what what's the what's well, the point? Well, it's more like 9 o'clock here. Oh, that's much better. I mean, even that hour makes a world of difference. So, can you talk to us talk to us about that? Oh my gosh. This is I mean, so what we so so there's a whole field of research called chronobiology. Chrono meaning t- study of time, biology study of life that looks at our various biological rhythms. And one of the things we know very, very clearly is this. around. So your two-year-old probably gets up really early. I've, I've trained him to not wake up before eight, actually. <laughs> oh, be, not before eight? That's yeah. very good training. Thank you. you could write a book. Yeah. Um, so, so little kids tend to be very, very much like larks, get up early. But around the age of 14, all the way through to about the age of 24, there's a marked shift in people's chronobiology. Much, much, I'm a, I have a 15-year-old son. Much, much later. They just naturally wake up later and go to sleep later. But in in the U.S., um, there there are kids going to school, going to you know, waiting for the school bus as teenagers at six thirty in the morning, and you have the American Academy of Pediatrics saying issuing a policy statement saying, "Please, school districts of America, do not start school for teenagers before eight thirty. And yet, the average school start time is eight oh three, which means you got plenty of students. Um, got plenty of students starting before that i had this in in my own in my own uh high school experience i took i had to take i didn't have to i I took french first first period and in in my french class you know it's like comment allez-vous and every you go around the class it's like je suis fatigué je suis fatigué everybody (laughs) tout le monde est fatigué you know everybody was tired because they were like 16 year olds trying to learn french at 7 45 in the morning this is such an important time as well because these are the times when you're doing the exams which determine which university you're going to get to if if that's what you want to do there are other things showing i mean even i mean i'll see you i'll see you and raise you you know there are other things showing that the school districts in the u.s that have changed that have moved back to starting time to nine we're not talking about moving it to two in the afternoon, um, have seen lower dropout rates, uh, higher test scores, uh, and I, you know, equally important, um, fewer teen car accidents and l- less obesity, less depression. Wow. Alcohol. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, here's the thing. You have a, the, the pediatricians of America have essentially linked arms and implored school districts to stop doing this thing that is contraindicated by every piece of science we have. Now, one thing that made me cheerful was naps. Yes. You are a convert to naps. I I must say, I'm like you. I'm not a good napper. You know, you say that if you nap, you tend to wake up incredibly groggy. Yeah. But you're basically making the case. I think they used to call them power naps, but for sort of 10-minute naps. Right. I always thought power naps were nonsense, BS, but the science is really there. Um, The ideal nap time is between 10 and 20 minutes. And the, so is that including the amount of time it would take you to fall asleep? No, but but no, it doesn't. Uh, so, but but what you can do is that you can, like like many things in life, the more you the more you try to nap, the better you get at it. Right. So, to me, I've always thought there's not research on this. This is my own speculation. Is that I think that napping is like meditation. So, if you, have you ever tried to meditate? Yeah, yeah, and. It's very difficult to stop it's, your mind from getting busy. Exactly. Yeah. So, but but if you if you come back to it, if you commit yourself to it. The second day is easier. The third day is easier. The fourth day is easier. And you just get better at it over time. Um, 
And so I think the same thing is true with napping. But there's some the ideal nap is where you have a cup of coffee first. You have a cup of coffee. Yeah, this was quite counterintuitive. Yeah. I, it's interesting. You have a cup of coffee, then you then you lay down for a, a short nap, uh, or you know just kick back and have a short nap. And what I do is I set my timer on my phone for 23 minutes. Have a cup of coffee, sit in a chair, put on my headphones, and um, I can usually get to sleep in six, seven, eight minutes. Um, so I get you know 15 minute nap. The 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 alarm goes off at 23 minutes. So I wake up. But here's the thing: I had a cup of coffee. It takes 25 minutes for caffeine to get into your bloodstream. Right. And so you get the so you so you so you get the short and nap. And you really do that each day, do you? No, not every day. Right. Not every day. No. Um, I do. But it. if you're feeling the absolutely the, the, the afternoon right dip. right. But it but so you get a double whammy. So you get the that the reason these short naps are effective is you get all the restoration without any of what's called sleep inertia, that groggy feeling. And so what you get here is you get. So you come out of the nap refreshed, but then it's like having, you know, like a rocket booster. It's like get the caffeine on top of it. And the best part about Good it is tip. that, yeah, but it's called a nappuccino, <laughs> <laughs> which is one of those phrases that I wish I had come up with, but did not. Well, we'll give you credit for it. No. Now, let's talk about uh, midpoints. Yes. Um, well, let's talk about your midlife crisis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jeff's borderline millennial, so he claims. What? Yeah. <laughs> So Ed is very much a child of the sixties. You know, I, I'm I'm from the seventies, which makes me a borderline. I was born on Christmas say. Eve, nineteen sixty nine. So Jeff typecast me, you see, as child of the sixties. Well, okay, right. he was born in nineteen seventy three, which, in a very strange set of okay. arithmetic, is, is more borderline. Seventies yeah. was next to eighties. Yeah, this is what this is what Sigmund Freud called the narcissism of small differences. Definitely, it's yeah. exactly right. That's what I'm going to say. So, so what? Go on. What midpoints are quite important. Oh yeah. Tell us a little bit about yeah. Midpoints. So midpoints have two effects. One, they can they can bring us down. Other times, they can fire us up. And so the the research on say the midlife crisis actually shows it's just there is mid, the midlife crisis is is one of the most there's, there's just no evidence of it. That's got me out of mind, by the way. That, now that you've yeah, told good. me that, but that's, that's, that's cured it. But there's a midlife slump, and it's pretty remarkable. There's um. Uh, there's some actually it's, uh, the the both researchers are British. One guy in the uh, Andrew Oswald and um, David Blanchflower, uh, Blanchflower teaches in the in the states. Um, that have shown that if you measure people's well being over time, it's shaped like a U with a gentle downward curve. People are happy in their twenties and thirties. They begin to dip in their 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 thirties. I mean their forties. Really start bottoming out in their fifties. So I guess you're on the brink of that. Yeah, thanks, um, And then, <laughs> well, hold on. And then, and then they start coming back, they start coming back up. And what's interesting about that, this research is that it's been replicated in more than 70 countries. So there's something, it's not cultural, it's not national. It, it, so if you look at the curve for well-being in the, in the UK, it's going to look like the same, the same as it would in the United Arab Emirates. Right. Um, it's pretty remarkable. But I mean, if you, you think you have it bad, the, the, the nadir, of well-being for American males is 52.9 years, and I am 53. Okay. So you are getting me. So you're getting me, actually. You just come over, come over the hump. You're yeah. the exception. No, no, but no, here's the thing. But here's the thing. Think about timing. So we're, we're talking in basically the mid-afternoon. You're getting me at 53 years old That's in mid-afternoon. True. <laughs> yeah. true. And you've not had a nappuccino. I have but... not had. You know what? I actually had a little nappuccino earlier in the day because Good I was so you. zonked. But, you know, 
you then got advice about what you should do. I was telling my wife about this last night or this morning, uh, which is that uh, you should li- make a list of 25 things that you want to do, decide what the five most important are, and then get rid of the other 20. This is Warren Buffett's advice. Yeah. Is that Warren Buffett's yeah, advice? Yeah, it's Warren Buffett's right. advice. Yeah, I think it's great advice uh, because I think a lot of times we try to do um, we try to do too many things and we have to focus on what are the you know, what are the simply, what are the most important things? Obviously doing a podcast. Well, was your about top to five, say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to work out whether it's in the top five. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you only know, have four slots left. But, but you know, the other fascinating thing about this book, I was telling Jeff at the beginning of the podcast is about this business, about 49 year olds, 39 year olds, oh, 29 year olds. Yeah. So I'm, 49 at the end of this year. So a marathon for so you a next marathon, year, then. A marathon beckons. This is, I mean, this is pretty amazing. And again, it's the, about the effects of of endings on our behavior. So this is research from Adam Alter at uh, New York University and Hal Hirschfield at, at uh, University of California, Los Angeles, showing that people are, di- the age at which people are, and I think this is international data, the age at which people are most likely to run a marathon is age 29, Right. Another common age, 39. Another common age, 49. So 29-year-olds are twice as likely to run a first marathon as 28-year-olds or 30-year-olds. Wow. No physiological sense, all right? 49-year-olds are three times as likely to run a marathon as 50-year-olds. I'm going to bring down the average. <laughs> <laughs> because what happens is that when we get to an e- endings can have an energizing effect on us, even something as, as arbitrary as, a, um, as the end of a decade. Like, that's not a real thing. It just... You know, your life odometer goes to zero. So what? Yeah. But it gets people to behave in a, in a different way. Yeah. I, I mean, the thing I found, I, I want to ask you about what you, what your, we call reasons to be cheerful, what you, what's the sort of cheerful messages out of the book. The thing I found sort of cheerful is that in a way it, it, it seeks to make sense of things that we kind of maybe intuit in the back of our minds, but don't actually realize about when we're most effective, how we can be effective about you know, what we do uh, when we're in midlife, like me and Jeff. Um, and me, uh, don't forget me. Uh, I'm at the lower point than both of you guys, okay? So I don't want to hear the griping. You, what what yeah. do you think is the cheerful message of this book? Oh, I think there are a lot of cheerful messages here. One of them is uh, has to do with the fact that if we, we, can, we can do better, right? If we take questions of when as seriously as wh- questions of what, how, and who, there's demonstrable evidence that we can perform a better and, be, and, and elevate our mood. So this is this is something that we can do that's absolutely within our grasp to to work a little smarter and live a little bit better. There's also some good research on on endings, and if we're intentional about endings, human beings generally prefer endings that that elevate. So my, so if you have good news and bad news to deliver, you should always deliver the bad news first, end with the good news, and people for rising sequences to declining sequences. So that's the opposite of what most people think. It's the opposite of what I've done, what I did for fifty two point five years. <laughs> The book is full of stuff like this. It's quite brilliant. It's called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Time in Damping. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we feel cheerful. And uh, I feel cheerful about the prospect of 52.9 <laughs> having met you. All right. Well, thank you. Cheers. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As ever, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what we've been talking about. If you've got any ideas regarding buses, reasons to be cheerful, and buses you've taken in your life, uh, tell us about them. Also, you can suggest guests. Or even buses you've driven over on a motorcycle like Evil Knievel. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to get a flurry of those. You do realise that. We're going to be inundated. There's so much of it about, There is, there, there is. Um, do you remember well, Evil Knievel? Of course I do. I always found it weird that he spelled his name Evil can evil. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, why why not? Was just it E V E L? It was E V E L. But he got his nickname but Evil can evil because what? he was a ne'er do well. Revelation now that was a precursor to English votes for English laws, which is also evil. Really? Yes, clearly. So they were evil can homage... evil was clearly worried about the West Lothian <laughs> question. <laughs> But it was a nickname he got because he was a ne'er-do-well as a teenager and a policeman pointed to him once. His surname was Knievel. I don't know what his first name was, but he said, yeah. um, hey, Knievel, you're evil, Knievel. Really? And that's where he got the name from. That's a good story. I believe. Imagine yeah. how history would have been different if you'd been called Jones. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's weird that the K is pronounced in Knievel too. Yeah. You don't say anyway, knife. Sorry, I, I, kind of, I kind of got you off the point. You did. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to hear from you on buses or on ideas for future episodes or guest suggestions. Um, you can email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. This comes from Sam Davis, who says, I was really interested by your education podcast. I had a bit of an unconventional education at a Rudolf Steiner school called Waldorf Schools in Europe. This education is heavily focused on art, drama, creative and project learning. The only exams you do are GCSEs and A-levels to fit in with the UK system. Um, But actually, universities really value the most broader education you complete at a Steiner school, which is completed alongside GCSEs and A-levels. 
Sam then describes how it works. You basically finish school a year later. You do your GCSEs and A-levels a day later. You only do G- uh, seven GCSEs, but two and a half hours of every day are spent on something called core learning, which is the main lesson. And it's very detailed project-style learning of one subject continuously for four to six weeks every day. There's a whole upper school uh, with a choir who sing three times a week, big drama projects involving most of the upper school. All that said, the point I want to make is I did do art GCSEs out of uh, seven in total. I did a couple and then a photography A-level, but I graduated university and work in finance now, buying and selling businesses for people and have progressed quicker than many of my peers and with less academic qualifications. My whole year at school have similar experiences and it's driven by having a deeper education and the ability to think creatively and problem solve. These skills are so often missing in the people we interview for our business. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, Next, we've got um, Steve Churchill from Manchester. Hi, Paul and Barry. The Chuckle Brothers reference, <laughs> if Jeff isn't borderline millennial enough. To me. I was really fascinated by the That's last... too old to understand the Chuckle show. Brothers reference there. I was you really... should have shouted to you. To you. Ca- to me. To you. There we go. We, we could do a tri- ch- ch- Chuckle Brothers tribute act. Aha. Uh-huh. I was really fascinated by last week's show on education. I'd first like to throw my experience of art subjects into the ring. As a lover of the arts, I took both music and drama at GCSE and continued drama to A-level. Perhaps surprisingly, I went on to study medicine at university. The skills I learned from the arts, such as empathy, public performance, organisation, teamwork and leadership, have undoubtedly helped me with a career in medicine. Therefore, I am very much of the view that the arts help make even the most academic of individuals more well-rounded. I was wondering if you could help me be more cheerful now. I keep hearing how other countries such as Norway, Sweden and New Zealand are doing such great and innovative things to improve public well-being. Is there anything we are doing well that other countries look at us as a source of inspiration for? Podcasting. Exactly. Yeah. Love you guys. Steve Churchill from Manchester. Trevor Gregory says, Dear Ed and the other fella, um, just wanted to say the podcast should be part of the national curriculum. Yes. He, he says so. And Definitely. This is, this is interesting. During the podcast, uh, the education one, Madeline Holt mentioned the system in Finland for educating kids based on project-based learning. She then went on to say, prompted by the other fella, that there's no evidence that it works, stroke doesn't work. But if you look at the EU Innovation Scoreboard, um, then Finland... Something you look at quite a lot, don't you, the, in the EU Innovation Scoreboard? Every week it used Every to be night. the pop charts, but yeah. now it's the Innovation Scoreboard. Greetings, pop pickers. Finland and Denmark and Sweden continuously outperform other countries. In summary, creativity underpins innovation, which underpins wealth and health and well-being. Good. Well, now moving back to an episode we did on prison reform, we, we've got some listeners in um, important places, Jeff. This is Mike Ewart, who used to be the chief executive of the Scottish Prison Service, uh-huh. who listened to our um, podcast. Uh, not that some listeners are more important than others. I just want to say, make that clear. We've got total equality as far as our listeners are concerned. Absolutely. But if we had somebody who is like a high court judge, or maybe somebody who works in a paint shop working on that machine, which mixes up the paints which i always think looks very exciting you know there's a little thrill that you get from hearing from these people with exciting jobs definitely definitely uh he says hello i was surprised that you quoted uk figures for current prison population riots etc in comparison to european counterparts the picture in scotland is thankfully very different and you might have found some intra-uk comparisons illuminating it was not always so. When I was chief executive of the Scottish Prison Service until November 2009, the prison population was rising inexorably and in line with that south of the border. I had argued publicly and often this was unsustainable and that increased use of incarceration was counterproductive. 
We really know very little about what works in terms of rehabilitation, but we do know that three factors tend to lead to people offending less. These are having a home, having work, having secure relationships. And we also know that if you send someone to prison, three things are likely to happen. These are losing your tenancy, losing your job, and very likely breaking up your relationship. So sending someone to prison for a short-term sentence for a relatively low-level offence is not, in capitals, going to lead to rehabilitation. That's a very good explanation, I think. It's going to result in the offender being more likely to reoffend on release. So by increasing the use of prison, and particularly the use of short sentences for relatively minor offences, we tend to increase the level of offending overall. This argument was not popular with parts of the media. I count it as a badge of pride to be described as deranged by the Scottish Daily Mail. Sadly, Edda was also regarded as wrong-headed, not just by Scottish Conservative politicians, but also Scottish Labour. Fast forward to today, and those arguments are now the orthodoxy of penal policy in Scotland. There is a statutory presumption against prison sentences of less than six months, and discussion about extending that to 12 months. The prison population overall is now closer to European norms, and there are increasingly innovative approaches to different forms of accommodation for female offenders. I claim absolutely no credit for this change of policy heart, but I am very pleased it's happened. That's Mike Hewitt. An air traffic controller. It'd be nice to hear from one of them. Yeah. Or a potter. Yeah. I think that looks like an exciting job. You get the Definitely. wheel going. Any potters listening, please please email in. Any air traffic controllers. Astronauts. Astronauts. Ever met an astronaut? I've met a few space cadets in my time. <laughs> uh, this comes from Olivia Hayward, who says, would you consider putting your minds to the question of changing from British summertime to Greenwich mean time? I heard you mention how you didn't like the darker evenings in a recent podcast, so I was hoping you might discuss the merits or otherwise of the change to GMT from BST. I recently heard that more young people are killed because of darker evenings, walking back from school, etc. I'm not sure of the source credibility of this claim. However, if it's true, the possibility of remaining on British summertime for 12 months of the year should surely be debated, and your podcast would seem the perfect place to start. It's worth saying what this would mean, isn't it? Because it would basically mean... It got lighter later in the winter, but it stayed lighter for longer mm-hmm. into the evening. Um, and you could have, you could stay on British summertime and then you could have British summertime plus one in the summer if you. Uh... So, would we end up on the same time as the rest of Western Europe? If so, that'd be a nice thing for people who are upset about Brexit. Yes. At least we'd get that. At least we get the time. Yeah. And I actually think, in principle, for England and Wales, this is probably really quite good and it probably would uh, stop accidents. I did look at this in relation to one of the manifestos I was involved in. There's there, there's a particular problem, though, the further north you go, and it's kind of obvious when you think about it, which is that it gets lighter later, and that could be like towards 9.30, 10 o'clock in Scotland. Uh, they're, the, they're coping with this stuff. In, you know, we mentioned Finland already, Norway. They're coping with it. Some of the happiest countries on earth. Well, maybe we should make you in the Jeffocracy. You should have a particular sort of prime ministerial responsibility as the sort of time envoy. You can, <laughs> you can go and open talks with Nicola Sturgeon. About, <laughs> I'd uh, have to go and explain to the farmers think, on the Isle of Skye. And, yeah. the, and the Scots. I think you'd have to explain to them, yeah. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. So here to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we are joined by comedian Kiri Pritchard-McLean. Hello. 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 Is it McLean or McLean? Uh, McLean like Die Hard. Okay. Sorry. No, no, no. I appreciate the correction, Ed. I didn't even (laughs) hear that it was wrong. 
Right. So. I, th- I, th- I thought I'll try and split the difference. Yeah, sure. It's like the 3,000 metre steeplechase, isn't it? You're sort of running at the word and you kind of got to make sure you get <laughs> over the water jump. Yeah, it is, it is a terrible thing when you're halfway through a sentence yeah. and you think, I'm not, not, not 100% sure about yeah. how I should say this. I, also, I will sometimes have the problem that I'm married to an American and because I hear American English so much, I forget which is the right version of a word from time to time. Her name's oh, really? Sarah Tomato, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, I've caught myself saying adult a few times recently instead of adult. Oh, to me, adult is whole. Like uh-huh. that's how people from Hot would say. So I thought, just thought, oh, that would be really northern. Because I know a few comedians who are very like turd. They're from Hull. Like you know, right. the, the vowels change. So yeah, yeah. I guess, I, yeah, I guess I'm just sort of interested in how people sound from everywhere. But yeah, I'm from North Wales. And we were just before we switched on the microphones, we were just talking about you're a relatively recent vegan convert. Oh God, here we go. Yeah. And um, <laughs> no, I think in the time we were chatting about, you may have persuaded Ed to give Meat Free Mondays a go. Well, we'd quite like to have Macca on, wouldn't we, to talk oh, about yeah. mon- Meat Free Mondays? Yeah, and oh. that maybe would persuade him if yeah, exactly. keep the wrap at home though, Paul. <laughs> the Meat Free Monday wrap. Yeah, just yeah. showed it to me last week. I mean, that's yeah. what happens when you've got no one around you saying no anymore. Mm. <laughs> that kind of just bizarre. That's what it's like for me and Jeff. Basically. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm here to ground yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. We um, need grounding. So have you, you've brought some ideas with you. Yes. Um, and these are ideas that potentially could be reasons to be cheerful if implemented. Um, what is, what's the first one? Well, I think we should sort of bring back national service but not mm. not that like so i've got this theory that if everyone was made to care about someone outside their friends and family mm. there would be you'd solve nearly everything yeah because i think loads of problems are caused by a lack of cohesion and a lack of empathy so what you would do is you would get assigned a bit like jury duty a person in your community so it's close enough that you could walk and um, that you just have to take an interest in that I'm you have to spend so... an hour with you're so a woman yeah. after my heart. No, I, even I've had this idea that, that you, you you would bundle together you. Tw- even me you. with my antisocial tendencies. I don't believe that you'd it. bundle together like a dozen people and get them to um, you know go and do it of an old lady's kitchen or yeah. you know um, even if she didn't want it done. Even if yeah, yeah. sure, yeah, just or, force or, your way in. <laughs> or you know, go and do a bit of topia on a local hedge just so people had to mix with people yeah. of a different sort to themselves and also feel like they they had a stake in the exactly because yeah. also I think that there's because I so. What I live in North Manchester, I, I do volunteer, but I know that that's sort of like a, a privileged thing that I have the time to do in many ways. But also, as soon as I started volunteering, I realised that like my experience of that community is not the same as everyone else's. So just to even know, just really know your areas and the different people that live so there. So how would your national service work? So I don't know whether it would be an age thing, but I just think you should do it your whole life. Um, you would all be in on this list, just like jury service, yeah. and then you'd be assigned, I guess for a year is a is a reasonable yeah. thing, and to be assigned someone within your sort of, po- it has to be walking distance to vote. Oh, polling station. Yeah, polling yeah, station. Yeah. So within sort of that bit, you can't know them or be like, you know, part of your family, which I know in some communities they're very... Uh, they're very integrated, so that is would be a bit problematic. But we're not talking about problems; talking about blue skies. And is it different? Do you have to do you have to sort of sort people into not being alike? If you see what I mean? No, you wouldn't go. Here's a racist, and here's a <laughs> like you know, like maybe I don't you think, would though. But well, I mean, but that's you the, could trust, maybe trust you the would. trust the lots. The you get to of the veto, lots to I reckon. That. You get to veto. So if you rock, but maybe up you and, change the mind of the racist. Well, that's what I think. But also, that is not the job of people of color to go out there and no, change no, the minds. <laughs> like that's that doesn't seem. Mind the you, I've got this friend in America. America, or somebody I know in America who is like the president of a think tank and she was on a phone in and a racist called up and she ended up then like 
going to meet the racist and persuading him not to be a racist because they could the kind of the radio station that she was on somehow organized for them to then have this conversation and she sort of persuaded him out of his racism but anyway i'm not, yeah. I'm not I, no that's there's a guy his, his name his name's daryl something he went around the deep south and just chatted to loads of people in the kkk and part of the thing is is if you create this a lot of those organizations thrive by creating sort of a straw man to defi- go well they're all like this and a lot of them haven't sat down and had a conversation with a charismatic interesting person of colour and then when they do they're like oh he's quite nice isn't he and then loads of them left so you see so somebody who used to work for me called Alex Smith set up a thing which is about bringing older it's a similar idea bring together older and younger people mm. to sort of matching them up I mean that's totally. more a voluntary um, thing but that's been re- it's been really pretty successful I mean it's all quite similar theme isn't it which is breaking down people's divisions empathy we well, said empathy yeah you'd need to have it so that rich people couldn't wriggle wriggle out of it oh yeah yeah like jump the draft yeah no yeah but no. is it is it compulsory i mean seriously is it compulsory or is it voluntary see if it's voluntary not enough people do it compulsory and the wrong the wrong people do it so i know that sounds gross but like i volunteer and generally the kind of people who volunteer the kind of people who make it the job to be aware of what's going on anyway and that's not the people we need to speak to but imagine if it was forced i mean the thing is nick can have really is it going to? Are people going to do it with the right spirit? Yeah. I'm sorry to be a sort of wonk about this, but but they would would after a few days, wouldn't they? they probably wouldn't like it at first. But, yeah. but but with anything like that, it's like sometimes you know, like when you know kids are sent to piano lessons and it, you know when they're like mm-hmm, and then they're like it's I'm so glad true they of did mine. that. It's <laughs> but it's 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 only it's not an hour yet a week. the I'm really glad stage. <laughs> oh really? Well, uh, no. Hopefully it'll come yeah. through. So I'm quite surprised by Jeff's reaction because so but we've got a theme running here, haven't we? We've got Helen's idea about that. We've got Kiri's idea. We've got my secret Santa. Uh, in, the, in New Zealand, they have a nationwide secret centre, which Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister, took part in. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's a little, so the secret centre is a small version of that, you yeah. see. Yeah. Did you hear about that? They do, they've got like a secret centre type thing where people go, like everyone's signed up to this scheme and it's like, you have, these are all the things I would possibly like. So you do, you know, you get however many presents, but someone got was paired up with Bill Gates. They just didn't know it. And I think they wanted like, well, I mean, if I could have anything, <laughs> if I was paired up with a millionaire, I think they went like the, uh, like an Iron Man mask or something like that, you know, like a film replica. So this thing arrives from Bill Gates and they're like, oh my God. But now I think loads of people have signed up being like, come on, Bill yeah, Gates. Good, <laughs> I'd like a billion dollars, please. Uh, yeah, I reached for my iPad because... We've got this email from Marcus Lewis, and it caught my eye this week. Bring back national service, says Marcus. Dear Ed and Jeff, I know this sounds a bit David Cameron, but hear me out. I wonder if anyone has thought seriously about bringing back national service with young people doing what some of my Danish and German friends did for their national service. They're now in their early 40s, which is to work for a year or six months befriending the elderly, working as carers in care homes in long-term care facilities, psychiatric wards. I work as an inner-city GP. My practice is on the Abbey Road, not the posh end. My practice is a difference in life expectancy of six to seven years from one end of the catchment area, uh, the Abbey Road Ward of Westminster, to the other, Kilburn Ward of Camden, that's in London. On a daily basis, I bear witness to and hear the stories of the divisions in society on the lines of age, infirmity, mental health, ethnicity, social class and wealth. There's a lot of segregation where people live in close proximity to each other but with parallel lives. National service would have the following benefits throw together young people of very different backgrounds. Young people care for the ageing society, ditto re-loneliness, Mental health, generational understanding, breathing breathing space for young people, but so so it's a th- it's so similar. It's exactly yeah. the thing because also loneliness is a huge problem, and I also think that there's been a gross thing recently that's been exploited. I think by the media, but been perpetuated anyway, in in trying to drive a division between sort of like my generation and baby boomers. So 
they're going, you're everything that's wrong with the country. And we're going, you're everything that's wrong with the country because you bought all the houses. So like between you and Jeff, basically. No, no, right. So so Kerry's talking about people born in the 50s, 60s like you. (laughs) And... You're not talking about people like me born no, in the no, 70s. No, no, good guys like yeah. you, absolutely. Yeah. Jeff's in <laughs> denial about his age, you see. Uh, I was born in the 70s. Yeah. Are you denying that you were born in the 60s? Has Wikipedia no, been tam- tampered with? I'm not, I'm not denying it. Uh, but we just got to coax Jeff out of thinking he's a borderline millennial. Uh, but um, is the compulsory... I'm being rather serious about this, but, yeah. is the, but I think it's a really good idea. Is the compulsory element not a massive problem though because it's sort of forced neighborliness yes i, I know what you, mi- you mean because you there could be someone sat there on their phone and be like well i've got to be here for an hour exactly and, but, exactly. but it's like anything that you do that's fine they're not going to get much out of it and maybe the person pet but they get they get the veto that's it i think you get i think you get a veto so there should be i wonder if there's a way of coming close to doing it that way but but sort of, I hate to use the word nudge because it was a David Cameron word, but sort of pushing people into Mate, it. Mate, he didn't through... invent nudge. Don't, don't, don't be blind, <laughs> yeah. blindsided by so, that guy. But push, push people into it through schools or, But we you know... already have that. We already have mm. your your UCAS um, application is more competitive if you volunteer. We already have all these signifiers, which, again, is only reaching a certain part of society. No, but like, for example, you go to the GP, which Jeff and I do a lot, uh, and they say, oh, you know, good to see you. Um, we wonder if you'd like to be part of this, you know, Kiri Kiri World scheme. Kiri uh, scheme. Uh, you know, where you just you know befriend somebody in your area, and we're trying to encourage it counter loneliness. Which you just, all you need to do is give us your email, and we'll match you up with somebody. Do you see what I mean? So you I can... want it to be compulsory. I want people to right. feel as okay. if it's, a, it's part of their duty okay. yes. to give some they're... idea of like a cohesion as what well, it is people, to be exactly. a citizen. When people are talking okay. about what it is to be, like, I'm proud of my country. Okay. I'm like, well, show people me should, then. People should, yeah. the, the the citizens jury of the cheerful podcast listeners should tell us what they think. Yes, absolutely. It's a great yeah. idea though. All right, um, another idea, Kiri. Okay, um, well, this I think is already a law somewhere, but you know how bystander syndrome is such a big problem, and um, so it, I think it's it's somewhere progressive um, in Europe where they have a thing where if you uh, witness a crime or an injury or an accident happening and you don't do anything, you are then culpable. This was the plot of the final episode of Seinfeld. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. So some state in the some so some small town in the states introduced it was a popular it sitcom in when the, Jeff was younger in the nineties. Um, the the idea being that they they witness a crime and they have to stand trial um, for just standing there and making wisecracks about it, and then the last episode is all the sort of recurring characters from the different series over the years coming and giving evidence against them. But they definitely int- the the reason they used that as a plot was because they introduced it somewhere in the states. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I can't remember. My friend was telling me about this. She's telling me about this. I can't remember what country it is in, but she saw it, it's a law and she saw someone fall off her bike and three people ran over to immediately help. Because if you were there and you were seen to be walking past and not doing anything. I mean, let me tell you, one of my best moments as leader of the Labour Party was when somebody fell off their bike. Sorry to put it this way. <laughs> but I was driving down the Kentish Town Road, where I was being driven by the Kentish Town Road. And um, this uh, young woman called Ella Phillips fell off her bike right in front of me. So I kind of 
ran out of the car, helped her up and so on. She said, thank you very much. And then we drove on. And then she did an interview with the local paper, which was basically said, you know, I fell off my bike and I was sort of slightly knocked out. And then I came to and, you know, I gazed up at Ed Miliband and I thought, <laughs> God, you know, he's come to rescue me. It's, anyway, sorry, that's enough about me. But you, so you don't be a bystander. Yeah, because it's so, because this is the thing everyone thinks, like, I just think we all need to get stuck into everything to what change anything. It's like scary though. Well, it's, things are scary. Things are scary. And that doesn't mean that they're scary if it's your person going through it on your own. Yeah. And I, so I, a few years ago at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, I was walking along and it's really busy. And I, I see everyone's at this bus stop. You have to kind of walk out into the road sometimes. And everyone was looking somewhere and I didn't know what it was. And there was this girl sat at the bottom of um, the lamppost and she was in tears. Everyone was just sort of staring. And I mean, there was there was probably about 50 people there. So walk past, because uh, part of you is like, oh, what time's that show on it? Like, I thought yeah, it was a bit... Um, <laughs> elaborate then, way of flying. Yeah, flyering. exactly. Yeah, it'd be like, 2.30 yeah. at the sea venues. <laughs> um, and then I was like, I just read about bystander syndrome. And I was like, oh no, this is, this is the exact problem we have. So I went back and I spoke to her and she had a, she was having a panic attack, which is something that she struggles with. So I just stayed with her for a bit and it was because she didn't have the right change for the bus. But when you you know when that's something you live with that kind of thing can tip you over and uh and yeah just there were all those people there who weren't doing anything because they're waiting for someone else to do it but if they thought that they could get a criminal record for but just it's standing quite there of a the- theme with the curiocracy i mean the, it's going to be you're going to, have to- be quite an active citizen in the curiocracy, aren't Absolutely. you? I mean, there's going to be like, there's no hiding place, Jeff, in the no, curiocracy. No, no, no I was really on board with that first idea. The second one I'm yeah. struggling with a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you're, you know, there's no sort of walk by on the other side in the yeah. curiocracy, is there? No, because I, I, I understand, like, I understand why, you know, people are busy and, yeah. and things like that, but like, it's just weird. You just they need to care about people. Yeah. And even if you have to force it at first. I think it's like greater citizenship. Just looking quite uncomfortable. Is it acceptable to just make eye contact with another bystander and sort of like roll your eyes a little bit? No, because you can just go, you're right. And they go, like I fell over in the street the other day on my hands and knees. Like like I'm I'm in the middle bit of being too old and too young to fall, but I did it. Um, And so I fell over and this guy helped me up and I was just very embarrassed. And I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And he's really trying to help me up. And I was like, honestly, I'm fine. And but that's if he just went over. So you could just go, are you all right? And you go, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. You don't have to be like, I insist on picking you up and now carrying you to your destination. Because I'm quite worried that by default I come across as a creepy person. Creepy vibes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you knew what I was talking about yeah, straight away yeah. there. Yeah. Well, I think you should maybe lead with, I'm not a creep. But are you okay? But if you really were a creep, isn't the first thing you would say is, I'm not a creep? Yeah, but actually, like all the like people that go, you I'm know such a good guy. If someone falls over there and you say, are you all right? Mm. They're not going to think you're a creepy person, are they? I don't, I don't know. No, this guy kept forcing a tissue on me. He's like, let me give you a tissue, let me give you a tissue. <laughs> and to the point where I thought his DNA was on it. But I, like, I, I can see that he was being a good guy and he just didn't know what to do. And he was like, have a tissue? <laughs> All right, so so this is um, a good a good Samaritan law then. I think so, yeah. Compulsory. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you have something else? Yeah, I've got one more. Okay. Again, this is all. I'm such a mad hippie. Um, I think that everyone should have to grow one thing in their house. So, like on a street, you know, like someone who's got the basil and someone who's got the rosemary. Because also, I'm really bad at. I've killed every plant, but like there's something about. I keep trying. <laughs> Keep murdering them. But there's something about growing something and being responsible for something that's good. And then also just like, it's 
good to have plants in a house. Like cannabis, for example. Yeah, for instance, yeah, you would be the house with the cannabis. Yeah, it'd have rather a surprise, I would be the house with the cannabis. <laughs> Just like herbs or little bits. You would have. So are you penalised if you don't do a good job of looking after the plants? No, someone comes over and helps you. Oh, so this is different to your other two ideas, yeah. where it's quite authoritarian. Yeah, oh, yeah, all this stuff is really, like, hippie, hardline. Right. That's, that's the vibe of me. It's like yeah. you have to force people to be good, and then they'll see that that's a good thing. Sorry, but this is not the Curie police don't then go around to check what you're growing. No, 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 it's not going to be any Curie police, no. Mm. Um, maybe, hmm, maybe it's a financial incentive then. Maybe you get some money off a council tax if you are, like, a provider of a herb on your street. What would you grow? I could do watercress. Exactly. Yeah, we did that at primary school and Haven't that seemed that quite easy. Pretty tasteless ages. though, isn't it? Yeah, but e- easy to grow. You know, I'm, I'm living in fear of the Kiri police. What, sure. what, what, I'm just trying to think what I would grow. We've got a rosemary bush in our oh, back garden. Absolutely love a bit of rosemary. Yeah. That's quite good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. You're from an agricultural background. Yeah, so maybe this is what's informing it. Yeah. So were you um were you involved in the planting and harvesting? No, we did. Do you know what we did? It was it was livestock mainly. But I, I like love the idea of when I go back now to my parents' farm. Like she, my mum was like, go and get this from the gut. So the garden has loads of herbs and stuff like that. And it's so nice to just be able to go out. And I, obviously, that's the privilege that comes with space and good air and all that kind of thing. But so, the air would be better. So what would the you bees grow? Would be happier. What would you grow? Oh, what would I go? What can't you kill? That's what I need to know because I have killed everything. Really? Well, I've bagged watercress already. I think that's pretty easy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, honestly, because I thought, right, good solid herb like that. I've killed everything, everything I've murdered. And I am trying, but I feel like Lenny from a Mice and Men when he squeezes the rabbits too tight. <laughs> like, I think I love my plants too much. But it's not, it's, it's sort of, it's kind of inanimate objects rather than animate ones. So it's yeah. not like a, a rabbit. No, no, no. I know you don't grow rabbits. <laughs> it's not like No, no, pet. I'm not, no, no, there's not just a... Like loads of limp bodies of pets behind me. I'm all right with pets. I can do that. No, but you're not encouraging people to have pets. No, 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 no. I'm just saying have a plant. Yeah. Okay. So are you on board with the uh, with the growing idea? Yeah, I'm still trying to think what I would grow. Are you sure about watercress? I'm just not. Well, I'm just not green green fingered. I'm not particularly green. So I also, think I think what he's done is he's played an absolutely great antisocial card there, and he's gone. Who wants cress? Exactly. No one. So he's like, I'll just have a tiny little tray on my windowsill, and no one's going to come knocking on my door. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there is a sort of cress appreciation society listening, but are you sure of that? Put, you're hard put <laughs> to think of the appreciation of cress. Yes. It's the antisocial option. Yeah. Well, what about you? You still haven't come up with anything. No, I was the rosemary. That's good. So, what's, think... what's a more exciting? Oh, yeah. mate, don't go for. If rosemary is what you have in your lemons, heart... lemons. <laughs> Life gives you lemons. <laughs> well, don't do. I think you'd yeah, be down on the deal if you because I mean, there's a polytunnel involved in that and all is, sorts. Is isn't there that? really? Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Well, lemons don't grow in the yeah. wild. Yeah, over- you're overreaching. Yeah. Blackberries. Nice, I like yeah. seasonal. I really seasonal. like a nice blackberry. Oh, well, what do you think? There we go. I think I'll go for blackberries. You could be a berry guy. Yeah. Yes. He's a berry guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Kiri, if people want to come and see you, what are you doing at the moment? I know you have a thing to do with musicals, which is quite exciting. Oh, yeah. A musical is a show that we do, yeah, where it's comedians singing songs from musical theatre, but they can't be good singers is the rule. Right. Um, so it's a very, it's like a school play. It's very sweet. It's very fun. So I do that every six weeks in the backyard, and I'm on tour at the moment as well. 
So if people want to find out more, they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, all that stuff. They Facebook, can go on google.co.uk. Yeah, my dad does that. Googles me every single night. God bless him. Very sweet man. Your dad Googles you? Every single night, yeah. To see what? Just what's if anything news up there. And I have a podcast as well. And on it, I mention whatever I mention comes up in like, you know, people go, they've also Your searched for this. Your podcast is called All Killer and No Filler. Is that right? Yeah, it's about serial killers. And honestly, um, Mark Watson was on our uh, New Year episode. New Year episode. Episode and he like raved raved oh. about your your podcast. Oh, that's really nice. That's really nice. So if people should download your podcast. If I mean, if they're yeah, not of a sensitive disposition, obviously, because it's about serial killers. What's what's the idea of the podcast? So each time we take a look at a serial killer, we look at their childhood. Um, we look at their crimes and their trial, basically. That's what we go through. Is it weird to ask if you have a favourite? Absolutely not. I've got a top three, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Judge anyone who doesn't have a favourite. That's where I am with it. <laughs> um, yeah, I tend to like the American ones. Not okay. like I'm interested by. Right. Is it that, they, you know, as ever with America, they do it bigger and better and fancier? They do it bigger and, and better, yeah. Right, yeah. They're the person I co-hosted it with, Rachel Fairburn, she's, she's more British, she's more traditional. Yeah, okay. So I like so- the glamour. So that podcast is all killer. No filler, no yeah. No filler. Uh, Kiri Pritchard-McLean, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Oh, we're in the outro. We're in the outro. Ed's really insistent that we keep the music going yeah. as we do the outro. Makes it groovy, man. Yeah, it just gets to like, you know, move your feet, exactly. shake a tail feather exactly. a little bit. I really like getting out on the buses. That was fun. Oh, uh, yeah, it was good on the buses. So what other forms? Carry on up the buses. What other forms of transport can we do in the future? Mm, by plane. That'd be good. Um, a tandem. A duck boat. What about one of those things? I don't know what they're called. You used to see them in old black and white films. You have two guys going along a railway on one. It's like got a seesaw oh, thing in the yes. middle. <laughs> Could we arrange to do a podcast yes. on one of those things? Sw- a swing? Yeah. I mean, the, there are many options here. This is but good. Answers on a postcard or via email. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and we went to Liverpool this week as we well, did. which you'll be able to hear in the future. We recorded a live episode at the Mountford Hall. It was really good, wasn't it? It was, and we've really Great got... Great audience. Really got the taste for it, so we've we got going to do more. It. And we're going to do another live show on Maundy Thursday. That's Thursday, the 29th of March, venue TBC. Yeah, and it's a good day to do one as well, because Maundy Thursday, people are feeling a bit Maundy, like, oh, I'm really Maundy today. Exactly. And, and we're going to do a podcast to bring a little bit of joy and optimism Easter to those Easter egg people. for all. Yeah. <laughs> Terms and conditions apply. Exactly. <laughs> Consult uh, a verified lender or financial advisor. <laughs> so if you uh, keep an eye on our social media, we will let you know more detail on that. We'd like to thank our guest, Nicole Badge-Duber, friend of the pod, and Kat Hobbs from We Own It. I thought they were a brilliant dynamic duo. They were so great, yeah. Great. Thanks to them for they coming on the bus with us. Also, thanks to Daniel Pink. His book, When, is out now. And Kerry Pritchard-McLean. Gail Lofthouse was our announcer. Ed Seed did our music. Uh, James Deacon did our eye dance. And um, Emily Power did our artwork. Thanks also to our producer, Emma Caution, with Backup and Research by Alex Vice, Bryce and Lindsay Todd. And I'd like to thank you, Jeff, for being you. Thank you. I don't think I get enough credit for being me. No, I think being you... <laughs> And I know you've had a sort of uh, great family time in the last few weeks. 
with your mother-in-law and father-in-law here. And she is the gift that keeps on giving, and you will be hearing from her daily, I'm sure. And you've made the mistake of letting her know you're going to Chicago. We're in each other's lives now. Yeah, (laughs) it's like um, like a vampire when you invite them over the threshold of your house. Yes, I think that's fine. Apart from comparing your mother-in-law to a vampire, (laughs) being being a slightly inappropriate Les Dawson-ish sort of uh, demarche, I would say. He's been Ed, the conductor, Milliband. He's been Rootmaster Jeff. And these have been Reasons to be on the Buses. Ding, ding. (laughs) Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.